Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking to Nicholas Means, who is the VP of Engineering at SIM. Nick has been leading software and engineering teams for more than a decade in the health tech and dev tool space. We're going to talk a little bit about his experience and kind of focus on how organizations can develop cultures of trust and autonomy while they're building a distributed engineering organization. And I think this is a, a relevant topic for everybody, regardless if you're in a distributed engineering organization with so much remote work going on these days and, and the need for collaboration, it's really, really important to, to develop that culture of autonomy and high trust. But before we do all that, so hi to Nick. Nick, how are you today? I'm good, Mark. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Hey, whereabouts are you located? I am in Austin. Austin. That seems to be like the hot place to be these days. Uh, it is, and it's about to be literally the hot place to be. We're coming into the <laughs> hot months, not not far from now. Well, did you guys get hit by the the cold snap that the whole West Coast of the U.S. has been? No, we've missed this one. We did have an ice storm about a month ago that knocked a bunch of power out around here, uh, knocked a bunch of tree limbs down. That was that was not much fun, but we've missed this one for the most part. How, how long have you been in Austin? Uh, I've been here for about 10 years now. Okay. So I'm in Seattle, and in the early 90s, pretty much all the way through the 90s, Seattle was the hot place to be in terms of, you know, we had all the the, the grunge music and uh, the, the economy with Microsoft and Starbucks and, and yada yada was all taken off. And so many people wanted to move here. And it really did change kind of like the, the local culture. I'm wondering in Austin, are you seeing any of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a it's it's a big cause for concern, you know, losing the things that make Austin Austin as it becomes too expensive for most of the people that have historically made this town what it is to continue living here. Yeah, I mean, that's one aspect that Seattle went through. Definitely. Seattle primarily was a blue collar town. The original industries were timber and then Boeing started, you know, in the in the 40s. And right. uh, and, and and even most of the Boeing jobs were, were blue collar. So uh, but now with, you know, with Microsoft and Amazon, and everything else, it totally changed. So anyway, hey, l let's get onto the topic at hand. Before we start talking about how organizations can develop trust and autonomy in their company cultures, why don't we just take a step back and say, like, why is it important? Because, I mean, we're just talking about old school Seattle, old school management style would used to be like, hey, I say do it. And you say, you know, how fast, how high, that kind of thing. Why is autonomy and trust super, super important? I mean, there's there's a bunch of reasons, a bunch of ways I can answer this question. I think the the one I'll start with is uh, I'm only so smart. And if I'm the one that's trying to tell everybody on the engineering, engineering team what to do and, and direct everything that they work on, we're going to get ideas that are limited by my ability to think and to be creative. Whereas when you can open up that process to an entire team of people, when you can hand them problems to solve versus solutions to implement, um, you get much more interesting ideas and, and you help the entire team start to build their conception of what the thing you're working on could be um, so that, you know, not only are they helping creatively solve the problem that you're bringing to them to, to ask for them to, to figure out how to solve, they're coming up with other ideas and they're injecting their own ideas into the software development process at the same time. Makes a lot of sense. And I, and I pretty sure for most people that is pretty self-evident. But again, there are some old timers like myself that have worked in traditional organizations where it was very much top down. Not a very fun place to be if you if you have any kind of initiative or drive. Let me ask you, what are the challenges? I mean, if it's so self-evident, 
what are the challenges to develop Boston autonomy? I mean, I think, you know, one of the biggest ones is uh, management and leadership ego. It's really hard to turn over that amount of control um, and, and to shift your, your conception of your role from, from one of being more directive to being in, in more of a, a supportive role, um, while also making sure that the things that need to get done get done. Um, it's, it's a much harder way to conceive of the job of manager or, or leader than the, the traditional, um, like you're talking about the traditional top-down management role where you're just kind of calling the shots and telling people what to do. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen that. And even even with myself in, in certain situations, sometimes it's hard when you you have a challenge and you just want to tell people, just just get it done, take care of it, do it yeah. this way. And and then that's probably, well, it's not the most effective way for a couple of reasons. It's not very motivational. Um, but I, like you said, it's impossible to be smarter than everybody else. So it's better to have that kind of network effect. When you talk about this challenge, though, where does the change start with? Does it start with the, the the leader who has to kind of let go of the ego, or does it does it you know is it a bottom up type thing, or how do you start to affect that kind of the cultural development? That's a really great question, Mark. I mean, I think you know part of it is uh, there are certainly engineers out there that would prefer to work in an environment where they have a relatively defined backlog. They're plucking things off that backlog. They're they're writing them, and then and then they're done with that task and on to the next one. Um, and, and it. It's not to say that that's not a valid way to work. It absolutely is. And there, there are certain things in the engineering world that might even work a little bit better that way. Um, so part of it is to, to even get started going down this path of higher agency, higher autonomy, you sort of have to figure out if you have folks on your team that want to work this way in the first place. Because if you've hired a team entirely predicated on more of a command and control approach, this is going to be a pretty tough shift. Not to say that you can't do it, but it's, it's tougher to turn that corner. That's like, you know, if you have a manager that's brought in to kind of implement this style of process to implement more of a, a high autonomy, high psychological safety culture, that's that's that approach to the problem where you're having to teach a team how to do it. The flip side is you might be an engineer on a team that, that does have a more command and control leadership style. And you can definitely do some things bottom up to an, encourage your your manager to, to let go a little bit and to 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 give more trust to the team. A lot of it's just delivering above and beyond and showing them, letting them see over time that you've got the competency to start making some of those decisions. Some really good points. And I've been in both situations. I, I try to give people a lot of autonomy. Um, in fact, I just say, hey, you know, we, we've identified this challenge or problem. You know, can you give it some thought and maybe come back with some ideas? And that works really well with some people, but I've also had the experience where people are like, wow, you just dumped all of this on me and I just want you to tell me what to do, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. and it's, so how do you, if, if your goal is to build this uh, culture of trust and autonomy, how do you manage the hiring process so that you're bringing or onboarding people who share the same kind of idea? Yeah. You know, there's things that you can look for in the hiring process. I think you know, the tech hiring process in general, the way we hire engineers, uh, it tends to be a little too heavily weighted towards technical screening. Uh, we tend to look really hard if somebody's technically capable of doing the job and our evaluation kind of stops there. Whereas really what you're looking for is somebody that can come in and be a part of a team and, and be effective working alongside other people and, and ship good work. And to do that, you sort of have to get them to tell you stories about teams they've been part of in, in the past. I mean, you have to ask more, tell me a time in your career where, where you saw something that wasn't getting done and you stepped in to, to do it. So you're looking for, do you know how to take initiative? Do you know how to work with others to get work done? 
And it's very much, it's a harder thing to suss out in an interview and it's a much more imprecise process. We could probably have multiple podcasts just on the art of hiring. (laughs) It's, I mean, seriously, I I think it's probably the most important thing that any leader does is just hiring, getting the right people on the bus, as I think as Jim Collins used to say. Yeah. Um, And, you know, in order to get the right people on the bus and keep them on the bus, you have to do a good job of hiring and then, you know, and then giving them, creating the the environment that kind of nurtures them or, or brings them along. You mentioned some of the specifics towards, uh, you know, hiring engineers. What, um, is there anything specific related to, you know, IT engineering, software development, the people who do those jobs? Is there anything specific or particular in relation to developing autonomy or trust with them that's different from non-technical? That's a great question. I, I think, you know, one thing that I'll say about that, there's, there's some things in Andy Grove's book that I would, I would take or leave um, but one of them that stuck with me is the idea of task relevant maturity. Um, so if you want if you want a team to grow in this level of autonomy and you want want them to grow in their ability to do this kind of work, you have to make sure that you're asking them to do things that they're ready to step into. Um, you know, if you take a junior engineer and you ask them to step into architecting a, a new major API component, that may be too much for them to bite off. And it, stepping into something that that uh, intimidating can actually be detrimental to somebody's leadership development because they they might learn to not trust themselves. Um, you know, I think the the other thing that I would say in response to that is, I mean, obviously, um, you need to have some level of ability to have those discussions as a leader. You don't necessarily need to be in the code every day necessarily, I don't think. I know some leaders that are and, and prefer to lead that way. Um, but you at least need, need to be able to ask the right questions and conversations um, to show the team that that you have the the technical capability to sort of be in the room, yes, to put it that way. And you know, so I, I've spent most of my career on on the sales side or business development side, and I have something called like the, a, a verbal toolbox, which basically any situation that I'm in in front of a client, I have some like go to phrases, and it's nice to have them. Yeah. as long as they don't come off as sounding, you know, too contrived, right? But, <laughs> you know, when somebody asks you something and you can't answer, you say, hey, you know what, that's a really good question. I haven't heard that before. Let me go and check with my team and I'll get back to you, you know, by X time with an answer. So whatever it is, I mean, you can have this thing. And when you have that, um, it helps you. It helps you with confidence, but you always have something to go to fall back on. Yeah. What are some of the, you know, go-to phrases or questions that as a leader, you could ask just to check in with somebody to see how comfortable they are with this proposed task. I, I want to rewind to something that you just said that I think is really important because one of the most important things you can do as a leader is to model saying, I don't know. Um, because you you walk in the room with with more um, more power than anybody else in the room, generally speaking, in, in terms of a normal organization with normal power dynamics. And if you as the leader can say, I don't know, um, I need to go find out, and I'll get back to you with an answer. It makes it much easier for the folks on your team to be able to say that as well. Um, so I think that's a really important point, and I didn't want us to, to whisk past that. And then, and then to speak to the actual question you asked around what are some questions that, that you can ask to understand where they are and understanding the, the task that, that's before them, I think it even starts a little further than that, along with the I don't know thing. It's, it's a, a matter of building an environment of psychological safety on the team uh, where everybody in the team feels comfortable raising that sort of information to you in the first place, uh, where, where it feels like something, um, I, I'm not sure how to do this. This feels a little bit big, a little bit unapproachable. It's a safe thing to say to you as the, the manager of the team, um, because it's really easy for, for someone to, the power dynamics of the situation to make somebody want to please you to the point that 
they're, they're not bringing information like that. They just want to make you happy and do what you're asking them to do. And so they hide the fact that they don't quite get it. And, and I think we've all seen projects kind of go off the rails because of that. You know, that's how I learned some of these lessons in the first place. Now, massive, massively important skill to, um, to be able to do that. Let's flip the table a bit and say, you know, sometimes you could have almost too much communication uh, about an objective as opposed as opposed to just getting it done. Mm-hmm. And I've I've been in cultures where it just seems like there's so much time spent on, you know, idea sharing, ideation, as you could call it, and uh, collaboration and building consensus that things that should have been done yesterday aren't getting done for, you know, literally months. So how do you balance it? I mean, I think a lot of that it comes down to making sure everybody understands the, the business need in front of them. Like, why are they doing the work in the first place? Um, I always look for, I, I always feel like it's a bit of a failure on my part to appropriately establish the vision for what we're trying to do if I'm also having to push for the urgency to get it done. If I'm having to in, artificially introduce urgency uh, to, to get the team to move quickly enough. Uh, because by and large, w- when you paint the picture uh, in a vivid enough way and everybody in the team understands what you're trying to do, when you need to do it, why you need to do it by then. I've seen teams generally drive their own urgency in that situation. That That's awesome. What can you tell about the, the importance of learning from failures? Because you, you try enough things, sooner or later you will fail at something. And how do, how do you react to that? And how can you turn that into kind of a learning situation? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot of it, as the leader, you carry a lot of the key to it because the way that you react is the way that the rest of your team will will react to failure when it happens. Um, and I talk a lot with with teams that I lead about being blameless in those situations. You know, if if somebody dropped a, a table out of the production database, I don't really care who did it. I care why it made sense and what we can do to the system to make it safer so that that doesn't make sense in the future or that they don't accidentally do what what happened in the future. Um, So I think a lot of it is when something doesn't go the way that you expect it to, you look to find the systemic cause or the missing context or what what you could have done from a systemic company level to get to a different outcome versus the the temptation that's always there to just blame it on the individual and move on. Um, That's the key thing that you have to avoid is Sidney Decker um, talks a lot about the idea that there's no such thing as human error. Um, that that everybody every decision that a human makes makes sense in the environment that they make it because people generally don't come to work to do a bad job they want to do right. good work. That, um, that that that's I mean it's kind of obvious but it's 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 funny when you put it that way that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and so I mean if you if you start with that as a baseline assumption that nobody showed up today to to drop a table out of the production database, okay, well why why did that happen? Um, that leads you down a whole different path of thinking than well they just weren't being careful enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue that at some level there's just incompetence and that um, you you may need to do something more than just making sure that it doesn't happen again. Maybe you have to talk to the, that person or that team. Um, and, it, you know, I mean, in, that's, that's, a, that's a real situation that we all face from time to time as well. Sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in that case, though, I, I think you kind of have to look in the mirror and ask how that person got to, to be in the role that they're in, in the first place. Damn, man, you're not letting anybody off the hook here. (laughs) (laughs) I've had to look in that mirror before. It's uncomfortable. And I, um, a couple things there, one of the best leaders that I ever worked for, I made a pretty sizable mistake early on in my career, cost the company some money. And I thought I'm doomed. Uh, but I went and I told him and, uh, he said, well, 
what'd you learn? And I, you know, I told him what I learned and he goes, you going to, is that going to happen again? And I said, nope. And he goes, all right, get back to work. And I was like the co coolest thing ever. And I realized that if he didn't develop that kind of sense of trust that I could go to him and, you know, and share a mistake that I made that I'd probably start hiding those kind of mistakes. Yep. And then that would, you know, that could hurt the company in the longer term. Yep, absolutely. That's one of the, the key tenets to the idea of like blameless retrospectives after an incident is when an incident happens, you want the first person to see it, to raise it, even if it was their mistake that caused it, because you want everybody to be able to contribute to solving it. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a common pattern that somebody makes a mistake and then in trying to fix the mistake, they make the mistake about a hundred times worse. Whereas if they had just caught their breath, brought other people on the team in, uh, it would have been a pretty minor hiccup in the grand scheme of things. If you remember Nick Gleason, he was the, uh, the guy who brought down Barings Bank which at that time was like one of the world's oldest banks. It was, uh, I think early two thousands, he was, he was in Singapore mm -hmm. and he was, you know, trading derivatives and he did a couple trades that went sideways instead of reporting, uh, them, he doubled down and then doubled down and doubled down. And at one point, I mean, he knew that the, the whole thing was going to collapse and he, he basically, you know, hopped a plane to Malaysia and was hiding out in the jungle and they came and got him yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of scary because it's like, well, I can fix this. I can fix this. And it just, in yep. his case, never got fixed. And another thing that you brought up is in terms of managers having to kind of look themselves in the mirror and admit, you know, when they make mistakes. And I've, I've another leader that I worked with, one of the things that he would say was that, um, you know, everybody at first blames themselves, but then it doesn't feel comfortable. So immediately what we start to do is look for blaming the competition, blaming the market, blaming the people we work with and blaming the people around us. Um, and that's just kind of a, you know, I guess human nature. What do you do to kind of um, level set with yourself or what, what would you recommend that people do to kind of say, hey, you know what, um, blaming doesn't really help. Uh, again, let's, let's not focus on who, but on why, why this happened. Yeah, it's interesting. I, one of the the things that I found myself doing is teaching a team to avoid blame, but being very comfortable with blaming myself. And, and mm -hmm. I don't think that's a healthy pattern either. Um, I, I, you want to acknowledge the places where you may have some shortcomings or you may have not delivered the information that you needed or, but ultimately every time, if you really look at it, there is a systemic cause. There's always a systemic cause that you can find. Maybe you didn't spend enough time developing the interview process. You rushed it out because you needed to get somebody on board in a hurry. And because you developed that process in a hurry, you missed a whole, whole kind of vein of questions that you should be asking to vet if somebody was an appropriate fit for your organization. Um, so it's just, it's a matter of, of chasing that bunny trail far enough back that you get to systemic information that lets you make a change. Um, because again, I mean, you know, leaders don't come to work intending to do a, a bad job either. No, I totally agree with you. But what are what are some of the um, expressions or phrases that you could use to kind of you know make people understand that we're not we're not out to blame anybody? What do you say? So things you can say to to help shift the conversation away from blame. So one of the things that I, I th that's in my toolbox that I use on a regular basis um, that we actually read at the top of every incident retrospective that we do is the the retrospective prime directive. Um, and it, it says that regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available, and the situation at hand. And, and I found that just by reading that at the start of a discussion about an incident just kind of gets everybody lined up in the same direction 
um, gets people thinking of giving each other the benefit of the doubt and, and really looking beyond individuals towards finding systemic things that, that we could have done differently. Uh, I also use the word learning a lot. I, I talk about, you know, we're, we're looking to see everything that we can learn from this incident, everything that we can learn from what happened so that we can make changes that will keep it from happening again. Um, so it's just that constant, constant reinforcement that the thing that we're looking for here is learning, learning, learning. We're not looking to blame anybody. We're not looking to figure out whose fault this is. We just want to learn from it because it already happened. We can't go back in the past and change it. So the only thing that's left here is to figure out how to keep it from happening again. That's awesome, man. And I think your point about learning is, is probably one of the key, if not the key elements for, of success for almost any organization out there. I mean, it's really, it's the whole idea of getting an MVP or a minimum viable product out to market. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because then you have an opportunity to learn. You get that feedback immediately, right? And if you're just, you know, if you're just working in a silo, um, you could you could be going totally in the wrong direction, but you need feedback. And if you're making mistakes, make them soon so mm-hmm. that you can learn from them, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of goes back to the th- where we started this call, you know, the, the whole idea of why you don't want to be a top-down leader and why you don't want that sort of leadership structure on your team. You want everybody oriented around learning. You want as many eyes on the problem as you can get, because that makes it a whole lot more likely that you're going to find a viable solution in the end. Totally agree. So let's talk about another kind of learning that sometimes feels a little forced, uh, but it's uh, kind of a, one of those necessary evils. And that's, you know, working alongside with compliance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, oftentimes the compliance, they will have us, you know, go through different programs um, in terms of how we do our work, but also, you know, we have to learn about uh, different industry standards or uh, internal policies and so on and so forth. How do you kind of balance what compliance needs to do with what the business needs to do and make sure that, you know, both sides are kind of working together in the same direction? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it all kind of goes back to the the same thing, you know, the the way that you get a team moving in the right direction is to make sure that they have the context around what the business is doing at that time. Part of the context you need to give the team is why compliance is important, why we have to pay attention to these things, what happens if we don't, how paying attention to these things sets us up for success in the long run. At the same time, the onus is kind of on you as a leader to work with the compliance people in your organization um, to help them understand the same thing, to help them understand your business objectives, to help them understand Um, what the team is focused on right now, what things feel urgent and help them sort of time compliance initiatives and and bring them up to the team in a way that doesn't feel threatening, that feels collaborative. Um, Because ultimately that's what you're looking to set up, right? Is that collaborative relationship between engineering and compliance so that engineering doesn't feel like compliance is some outside presence that's coming in to completely ruin the way that they work. And, And so that compliance doesn't feel like engineering is pushing back on literally everything they ask for. How important is it for the compliance team to understand how the engineering team works? I think, terms- it's, ab- I think it's absolutely critical Okay. Be- because it's really easy for compliance to come in and completely disrupt the way of an engineering team, the way that they do their work. Likewise, there's, there's ways that compliance can come in, come alongside the engineering team, help them find a way to put the controls in place that they need to put in place without disrupting uh, the, the, the way that they work. I mean, you mentioned I'm, I, I lead engineering at SIM and that's, that's actually the whole thing that we're about as a company is helping put access controls in place for organizations in a way that's not disruptive, that's not compliance coming in and going, okay, every time, every time you want to deploy code, you need to get these six sign-offs. It's okay, how can we come in and add this control that's required for these reasons, but doing it, do it in a light touch way so that it doesn't slow down our velocity, so that it doesn't feel like it's a big drag on our ability to get work across the line. 
that's almost kind of a use case right there. Could you expand on that idea of how you can go in and kind of um, make that process easier? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of it is when compliance comes in and, and is looking to put a control in place, actually work with the engineering team to to sort of figure out the right way to put that control in place, to, to, to bring, bring the control to the team and collaborate with them to identify the right way to do it. Um, you know, another example, one of the ways that we use SIM at SIM, um, we're a small company. We don't have a whole lot of controls in place because we're pretty early stage. Uh, you know, a lot of companies at our stage would probably still have wide open admin access for a lot of people on the team. We don't have that. Uh, we have controls in place for that. And the way that we manage that is by peer approval for, for production system access. So it's sort of a, a two keys to launch the, the rocket approach. If somebody needs to get into production to do something, uh, they use SIM to, to request that access, to post the reason for that access. And then anybody else on the engineering team can click the approve button if that access makes sense. And so usually if you need to get into production to check a log or to do something, in about 30 seconds, you've got approval to do that. And then our system is kicked in on the back end to change your AWS role to give you access to whatever it is that you requested access to. Um, so it's, you know, it's a matter of we didn't want everybody carrying wide open admin access to our production systems for obvious reasons. Um, and we didn't want to make the compromise that, that a lot of startups do to, to carry on that way long term just to speed stuff up to, to help us deliver software faster. Um, but we also couldn't afford to compromise significantly on our ability to deliver software and to slow down. So, so we, we defaulted to peer approval as a way to do that and used our own tool set to do it. That's a, a great example. And I'm, I'm just curious, can you, when you grant that approval, can you do it for a certain duration or a certain task? So when you request the approval, when you request the access in the first place, you, you attach a duration to that request. Mm -hmm. And then when that duration expires, uh, it automatically gets unwound on the AWS side. So you, we, we make sure the system automated, automatically comes back and cleans up your access after you're done. Awesome. So uh, let me ask you, I mean, because you, you have your own podcast called Managing Up. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why did you create or co-host it and what's it about? Yeah, so we, we like to jokingly refer to it as a, a peer mentoring session that we record and put on the internet. Um, we, we end up talking about a bunch of different things, kind of like what we've been talking about here around, you know, the ideas of blameless culture and, and how do you motivate a team. Um, every week we'll pick sort of a management topic, some of them from listener questions, some of them just based on what we're dealing with in our respective jobs at the time and spend 45 minutes or an hour talking about it. Um, but, it but it is very much sort of a free-flowing conversation uh, between the three of us and occasionally a guest that we'll invite on. And then do you, once you agree on a topic, do you go away and do a little research on it or is it just you're kind of sharing your ideas about it? It just depends. Uh, there are times that we have all three read a book together before we we recorded uh, an episode on a topic, and there's other times that we've shown up the day of of recording and figured out what we wanted to talk about and just dove straight in. Uh, there's, you know, we we kind of know we're hitting on a rich vein of conversation when we have to cut the conversation off so that mm -hmm. we don't waste too much material before we hit the record button. Hey, let's talk about your role. I mean, you're you're VP of engineering, mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm assuming that you work very very closely with the product team. Tell me how that conversation unfolds, because if you have a head of product, I'm, that's an assumption. I should clear it first. I mean, do you have a head of, a head of we product? We do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, obviously that relationship would be really, really important. Are there times when, you know, you go to the product team and say, maybe this is, maybe we've got our priorities a little bit out of order. Maybe we should reprioritize in a different way. Knowing though that, you know, you're not head of product. I mean, do you, do you have any challenges like that from time to time? I mean, I think one of the things that you have to have for a successful engineering and product leadership relationship is a healthy sense of tension there. 
mm-hmm. um, product should be pulling for for features and for users and for for developing the things that that users need. Engineering should be pushing back when necessary to make sure there's bandwidth for for things like refactoring and for technical debt payback and, and that sort of thing. But I think it's important that that happens between the product leader and the engineering leader and not in front of the team. Um, the team should always feel like they're essentially being co-led by, by head of product, head of engineering. They, they, there should always be apparent harmony to the, the engineering organization from those two roles. I, and I think that's really important um, because, you know, I, I think we've all seen product and engineering relationships that have kind of devolved to the point where it's it's really contentious and, um, you know, it, product is pushing for criteria for done and engineering is just trying to check all of those check boxes. And it's it's not a productive relationship at that point. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of a lot of making that six, that relationship successful happens in the relationship that product and engineering leaders build one on one. That's some, I think, some some great advice there. The challenge that I see with with um, product teams is that they're getting pulled in many directions as well, right? I mean, you've mm-hmm. got their research, you've got what customers are asking for, you've got what your sales teams are asking for, and it's kind of like, okay, what's real? You know, what do we really need, and how do we prioritize that? Yeah. And in the cybersecurity space, it's actually kind of interesting because a lot of companies, depending on their solution or the type of solution they're offering. But if they're if they're any kind of like intrusion detection or malware or business email compromise uh, type of product, uh, instead of looking at the competition, for example, which a, a lot of companies in uh, in many other industries will do, they'll say, hey, what one what what's the competition doing, and what are our customers asking for? But in the spaces that I was just referencing, they're actually looking at what the bad actors are doing, right, and saying, mm-hmm. okay, what's the latest evolution of these threats? that our customers might not even be aware of, that our competitors probably or might not be aware of, um, or at least haven't developed a function or feature to address yet. So, you know, and so that's kind of an interesting thing. In terms of what SIM does, where does the motivation for, you know, the next set of features and functions come from? You know, a lot of it comes from our existing customers. Um, you know, SIM is a very flexible product. It's configured via Terraform. So you, you can write workflows that do pretty much whatever you need them to do. And, and so we're kind of looking for people to to cowpath features for us. You know, once once we start to see that cowpath wearing in the grass, where people are are doing sort of the same thing over and over again with Sim, then we start going, okay, well maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to this and make it into a first class integration or a first class feature of the platform. Make it easier to do the thing that it seems like customers are doing over and over again. I mean, you know, and then the other the other area, of course, is you know what are we hearing on sales calls? What features are people asking for? That would make it easy for them to buy sim if if the product just did that so then you then you have to do the hard part of taking all of those disparate inputs and figure out okay well what do we do next with the limited time that we have that's a great observation and a great method obviously you've given a lot of thought to leadership styles and team building and so on um if you had to name like one or two books or resources that you'd say hey you know what anybody in a leadership position should go and, and get a hold of this what would they be my go-to recommendation is uh, Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet. Um, and I, I love it. I tend to love things that are sort of outside the, the normal sphere of technology and technology leadership. And the, that's definitely an example of it. Um, David Marquet was a, a nuclear submarine captain. And he very much implemented a leadership model that sort of bucked the traditional mi- military hierarchy and turned an under- underperforming nuclear sub into the top performing boat in the fleet. 
I mean, it's, it's very much a, you know, it doesn't read like a typical management book where it's like, here's an aphorism, here's an aphorism. It's actual stories from his time leading the submarine and, and the, the people, the, the way that they developed through that process, the way the boat developed through that process, and the way that he interacted with his leadership and built trust with his leadership to try this in the first place. Um, so as far as a toolkit of how, how do you go about building a more high autonomy um, uh, approach to leadership and, and, and team, that's my go-to resource there. Awesome. Greatly appreciate it. It's on my list and I'll be ordering it on Amazon later today. So let me ask you, what's, what do you got planned for 2023 for, for SIM? Any events, uh, any new developments that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the, the year to come for us, um, we're, we're looking at expanding the platform right now. We primarily support AWS workflows as, as far as infrastructure, uh, support Okta, OneLogin, uh, a few other things as well. Um, we're very seriously evaluating GCP support. Um, so expanding the platform out where it can manage access and uh, escalation on, on the GCP platform. Um, and then, you know, uh, also looking at what are, what are the other systems that our customers are using SIM to manage. Um, you know, one of the powers of the platform is you can use an AWS Lambda to sort of do anything you need the platform to do that it doesn't already cover. So what are the things that they're using uh, those Lambdas to address? Do you guys go to industry events or if people want to get more information from you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, we're definitely going to be at SREcon um, and I will be speaking at Lead Developer London this summer in June as well. Um, but the best way to get information from us um, is uh, via our website at simops.com, S-Y-M-O-P-S.com. Uh, we actually just posted a brand new demo video on the front page of the site. Um, so if you want to hear more of my voice, that's one place you can go to hear it. Awesome. So thank you so much for that. Hey, Nick, I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. It was a lot of fun. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.